Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. This show is produced by the Powell Group, the leading business consulting firm in the game industry. Visit us online at IndieGame.Business to get your free pass to our next digital event coming December 8th, 9th, and 10th, where you'll have more great sessions you can participate in for free and inexpensive passes to our industry-leading digital business-to-business meeting system. Also, make sure to donate to Extra Life. We've got a link down below in the description, or you can even join the Indie Game Business Extra Life team. That link is down in the description as well. Here we go, Indie Game Business. So, welcome back to the Indie Game Business Winter Sessions 2020. Uh, next up, we've got the uh, wonderful Yoast. I'm going to, yeah, I got that right, excellent. So, you know, he is now a teacher over in New York, but, you know, he ran Super Data Research for many, many years until he sold that to, it was Nielsen, wasn't it? It was, uh, yes. Yep, yep. So. One of the go-to people, I'm on his newsletter. If you're not on his newsletter, you need to be on it because some of the best insights you're going to get to the business side of this industry, you know, every time he sends that one out. But I will leave it to him, let him go from here. And oh, one more quick announcement. So, you know, Gilles has got a, a really good book out on Amazon and all of our pass holders are going to get a discount on that book when we send out our, our goodie bag on Thursday. So if you're just listening and hanging out, that's awesome. But if you want some some goodies that come out of this event, make sure you grab one of those free passes as well. And so, yeah, with that, it's all on you. Thank you. Appreciate it, Jay. Thank you so much. So good morning. It is 10 o'clock here in Brooklyn in the AM. So uh, I have prepared, I guess, 58 slides, which I tend to blow through in about 30 minutes or so, and then we'll do a bit of, Q&A, see what comes up in the chat. Um, and I'd love to hear where I'm wrong, off, stupid, crazy, or brilliant, um, you know, all, uh, all manner applies. Um, I'll start at the, at the very front really quickly. So um, I'm gonna try to make this easy. So there's, this deck is also meant to uh, allow people to read it on their own later. So there might be a lot of words in here and you go, well, I, I don't have time to read all this. Don't worry about all that. Um, it's, uh, you know, for later. For some bedtime reading, um, but Jay's right. So I uh, started Superdata in 2010, very briefly, which was really the culmination of me working as a gun for hire analyst while I was doing a PhD at Columbia. Um, my initial inquiry into the video game space was, of course, uh, I love games. Why aren't more people doing things around it? Uh, I know that I'm not a creative. Uh, I don't make games so much as rather I play them, uh, you know, in all manner. Uh, but I was never one to design them. Um, and so rather than that, you know, I became an academic around it and, and studied them instead, uh, which has been a very fruitful way to go, obviously. Um, not least because it's a very fertile ground for a lot of interesting conversations. My personal take, and we'll talk about that more in a minute, is really that games are a form of expression. Uh, and I think it's really interesting to see how different games tell different stories, how uh, different games can uh, you know, present a different epistemic universe, a different narrative economy, and how people navigate and go through these things. So in this case, um, you know, while doing the degree, I ended up uh, working for a few different consultancies that in 2010 started Superdata, 
took about three years to build that company to the point where we could hire uh, and really had our business model figured out. And then from there, it was a matter of uh, you know growing the business until 2017 when we raised over a million bucks in funding to throw fuel in the fire. And then a year later, or I should say five months later, Nielsen came around with a, with a letter that said they wanted to acquire us, which is very exciting. And you know the culmination of a lot of hard work from uh, you know, people that, with whom I was very thankful to be working. Um, I got out in February, about two weeks before the pandemic, and um, have since then published a book uh, and been getting involved more to the investment side of things. Uh, what I love uh, is to really uh, see creative visions and see people uh, thrive and, and, and do well in that. So uh, my publicist would, uh, immediately discount me if I don't tell you to do these two things, buy the book, sign up. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, of course. And the theme really today is a sort of a broader theme about how we can look at the games industry, the larger trends, and really kind of figure out, like, now that we're here in the industry, what's different than where we were before, right? And uh, by which, uh, in my mind, uh, the conversation very quickly goes to innovation as a competitive advantage. Uh, you know, we make great games. Many people will make great games. That's not really the problem. Um, one of my uh, uh, favorite quotes from Raf Koster is, uh, being creative is not necessarily a unique virtue. Uh, and that is always a bit of a, a sobering realization, of course, like being great at game design alone isn't good enough. You have to think through the whole thing. Um, and so, uh, you know, great big success, either commercially or critical acclaim, those things tend to not only depend on, uh, you know, coming up with great games, so hence, uh, you know, the princess is in another cans the castle. Like, where you think it is, it's not. It's actually uh, something else. And so another way to phrase that in my mind, and this is the first of three sections, is really sort of how do we catch a unicorn? Like how do we, how do, we do that? What's the thinking on that? So let me just quickly check the chat here. Okay, well, good. Nobody's on fire. So the industry then, of course, in very brief summary, is uh, doing well. As we all know, I'm sure you know every every report that comes out is like the numbers bigger uh, every time. I speak to a lot of investors, I speak to a lot of journalists. Every time, it's like, wow, I didn't know it was so big. It's like, well, if you didn't know, now you know. Uh, you know, what for an audience such as this is sort of obvious. Uh, continues to be sort of a befuddling experience for everybody else, uh, and that's interesting, of course, uh, uh, in the sense that it's easy to overlook how it changes the material realities within which people run businesses and create games. And so just to give you sort of an overview, so for the book that I wrote, I collected a data set of uh, revenue and a bunch of other metrics across 200 something companies over the last 20 years, you know, allocate them by region, by platform, see how they run their businesses, and then just draw from their, uh, you know, this conclusion. So it's a, a ground up uh, sort of approach. And you know, needless to say, you see mobile exploding, and uh, of course, PC and console also thriving. Uh, particularly the last decade, digitalization has really uh, done great wonders and miracles uh, for the industry, and has allowed it to grow. Okay, cool. We know this now. Wonderful. That's why we're all here. Um, so here's something you might not have known. Um, in this universe, where we now end up with uh, great big success. There's also a lot of these unexamined cliches. And one of them is, of course, the, the myth of the lone genius, in my mind. Um, it is not unique to gaming that uh, you know, we, we tend to overemphasize the efforts and the accomplishments of the individual over that of a team. Um, and in that case, you know, one example would be, uh, of course, Stardew Valley. 
you know, here we have a creator, according to the book by Jeff Sh uh, Jason Schreier, Blood, uh, Sweat, and Pixels, who spends five years feverishly working on this particular vision that he's had, you know, and then of course goes and says, well, you know, great games will sell themselves, right? As if to say, you know, the market will naturally become efficient and I will find consumers for this. And it will all line up as long as I make the best game possible. Um, and uh, what strikes me there is of course, in his case, he was right. He sold by now probably over 11 million units totally of Stardew Valley. Well-deserved, it's a wonderful game. It's absolute time machine for me personally too, in, in going back to a time when things were different. Uh, and so the success is totally justified. It's just the, uh, you know, just because you got the answer right doesn't mean that you answered it the right way. By which I mean uh, his his lack of uh, emphasis on, say, the business model behind his game, um, you know, omits this very important thing, which is his girlfriend basically subsidized him for five years as he, as he was living with her. Uh, she would pick up the bills, pay the rent, as, uh, as, as it's described in this particular instance. And so while we can say, of course, like, oh, well, it was just this individual who makes a great game. Like, yeah, but so what about the five years of you know, revenue that uh, he, had to, he, could, he didn't have to make, right? And so that's a really interesting idea, of course, that we have a universe where individual creatives can be so successful that, you know, everything else be damned. And it's a narrative that we find throughout the industry, uh, not just in the indie level, but also, of course, in the top tier. Um, you'll recognize most of these names, I'm sure. Some of these are, uh, you know, fantastically uh, humble people that work very hard uh, and have really earned their critical acclaim, you know, after being through it for many years. Some of them, you know, uh, they're, uh, they stand politically perhaps on a different spectrum than I do. And others are just really, you know, just categorically uh, breaking new ground. We attribute all the success to individuals because it's just easier to do so. Right, it's just this sort of a heuristic in, in our own minds where it's much easier to talk to a person than it is to to, to a team or some invisible crowd of people. Um, but it's not something that's unique to gaming, um, and I think that that has a lot to do with the way that we understand, perhaps as consumers of of creative arts and how we look at it. That it's much easier to to inter, inter um, to make the artists and the and the arts interchangeable, um, and that tends to be a, a common narrative so one example is um a dutch painter vermeer uh, lived in obscurity for most of his life sold a bunch of paintings locally he had 11 kids after he died uh, you know his wife sold some of them to the local baker to pay off their bill right and so not much going on there until a century later he was picked up by a few of these art historians who then you know, looked at his artwork looked at his his paintings and said that this is an absolute master and so long story short he then rose rose to the higher echelons of like the dutch uh art and the painting royalty becoming one of these you know incredibly famous uh, icons of that uh, golden age in, uh, in dutch painting back in the day and so what that suggests obviously is that here is this one lone genius kind of plowing away toiling away and then only later, of course, gets recognized for it. But so that's the true nature of a genius, of a, of a creative. Um, not so much. Uh, the names to the right of here are his contemporaries. Um, and what those people have accomplished is basically um, you, by, by positioning him in a broader framework and in a network of other creatives, you recognize that, hey, you know what? Maybe it's the network of people around each other where they all inspire each other, compete with each other. There's a lot of, of course, money at this time 
in Dutch society, in the upper layers of society, people are commissioning works. Well, what are they paying for? What do they want us to paint, right? And so you start to see then that uh, some of his contemporaries uh, know Jan Steen, for instance, the, the one at the bottom best, which has these lavish sort of family scenes and settings where it's not this pensive, you know, these sort of introspective pages like the milkmaid that you see here, or the girl with the pearl earrings, where you have this sort of, you know, that million, uh, uh, that long stare into the distance. Like Jan Steen is much more lively, vibrant, colorful. And so people would pay for different things. And if you place an artist, an individual artist in a broader context, you immediately start to see and identify that the economics are also a big part of what affects and influences the artwork, right? Um, and then in the case of the lone genius and the, the individual creator, uh, it is not so much some long-standing tradition to overvalue the individual's inputs and accomplishments. It is also uh, outright a marketing tactic. And so here we have the founder of EA who, uh, was so enamored with uh, you know, the, the idea of this rock star uh, game creative that uh, you know they just started to market it as such, right? So and that's I think where like a Will Wright fits really well, of course, in the EA tradition. Um, but it creates this persona of what it's like to be a creative. And so the overvaluing or the low genius is one of those myths, uh, which of course in some cases it's totally earned and true. Uh, but I think in general, you know, it doesn't really explain the success of the industry today. Um, a second one in that category would be, uh, for instance, technological determinism. So often do we explain the industry by way of looking at its different iterations of its hardware, more bits, more bytes, uh, more graphical capacity. That's what defines growth. And to a degree, that's totally true, of course, where every new generation of hardware has so many more features and so many more capabilities that that is what drives uh, growth and success. Um, yes, you say, okay, of course, uh, but it's not really only because Super Mario was a great game that Nintendo was able to pull the industry out of this uh, out of this uh, crash in the early 80s. Uh, back in the day, you would have, of course, a lot of undifferentiated hardware, a lot of people making games that look just alike. It wasn't because Mario was the best game ever only, right? It was a great game. Uh, I'll admit that is, uh, obviously. But it was also a big part of a very innovative business model behind it, right? It is to kind of give you an idea that it's not just about the creative, it's not just about the content, it's also about being creative with the business model. That's sort of the broader takeaway. And so on the, the way that Nintendo then uh, turned the industry around in the 80s was uh, this sort of three-pronged approach of having a very strict regiment around who could create, um, what conditions you would have as a creative, as a developer, uh, what certifications you need to meet, you needed to have you needed to pay in, you needed to provide so many units for marketing purposes, um, and then they would create effectively a two-sided business model where the publisher side would subsidize the marketing, right? And so they did it, and they also controlled for the quality of the content. Um, the second piece was very tightly controlled uh, management of their inventory of their supply chain. So they would give units for free to retailers saying, you only pay us if you sell them, we pay for everything else after all their disappointment with the uh, previous generations of uh, consoles, retailers said, okay, fine, whatever, we'll do it. And then that allowed them to get into the market very aggressively and you still see that tactic today. And so it was managing the creative, it was managing the retailers, but also, of course, the third pillar here is the, um, you know, the, to rebuild the trust of the consumers and the quality of the content, and not just giving them great games, but also having a sort of a support network in the form of allowing them to call a hotline if they got stuck, like I would regularly do 
um, giving them a magazine to see what's up, what's the great game. As you're standing in front of that, you know, this row of titles, which one are you going to buy? Which one is worth your 60 bucks? Uh, you know, giving people something to go on so that they can enjoy themselves as well. And so, in other words, none of these things have anything to really do with the making of games, but really with the efficiency and the, and the back-end business model and, and thinking in creative ways around that. Um, and so I guess he's back. Here's another uh, quote from Trip. It's like nobody would think about it in that in that terms, and, and uh, you know where you could collectively subsidize the marketing, collectively deal with these things, uh, and really uh, rally the industry to all work together rather than have this very competitive, uh, you know, zero sum game. Um, you know, and that's I think a, a moment where you have to realize that there is a mental inertia. There is a moment of uh, executives and decision makers and creatives starting to think differently about the circumstances and they're starting to include their uh, broader ecosystem and their economic context in um, in how they work and operate their business and of course uh, if i say the same thing but express it in pictures it'll look something like this um things were going fine in the early uh, 80s you know after of course those success in the late 70s and then it collapses and then uh, nintendo very quickly brings it back to life and you see of course the cyclicality you see how every iteration of hardware pushes the boundaries a little bit, uh, adds more people to the uh, install base, uh, encourages publishers to spend more money. And so that then is the broader ecosystem um, that, that seems to work well for the console space. So those are some of the preconceived notions that over the years I've uh, run into. And I like talking about them because I think it's uh, in many ways, uh, you know, not always obvious to creators that, um, yes, you have to pay rent and you got to pay your staff, you got to you know pay for your Adobe licenses, whatever, but at the same time, there's a broader universe out there uh, uh, with which you can also get very creative, right? Uh, and that often tends to be a very, very helpful thing. So as a second piece, then, uh, you know, now we can look at a more contemporary uh, set of questions. Uh, the first one really being, like, okay, well, what's changed? And the, 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 the thing that we will probably know well is like, okay, well, if you look at consumer spending and how people allocated playing uh, you know, far out uh, outstrips uh, all the other ways of entertainment consumption in a, in a direct uh, uh, consumer revenue model. Um, but that's not enough, right? Like the thing that really changed the business over the last 10, 15 years uh, was that now no longer do we sell individual units to individual consumers. We now have these network effects, right? We now have an opportunity to put people online, have them play together, and then that becomes the value of the thing, right? It's the, of course, the game has to be pretty and has to be exciting, and there has to be perhaps a solo campaign. And I'm a firm believer in, you know, the everlasting appeal of uh, single player campaigns and games because they're just awesome. Um, at the same time, you know, the, the great innovation or the great moment that a lot of companies capitalized on was to leverage network effects, uh, both in and external uh, effects. And that should have really been a moment of, hey, you know what, we need to have a thought, a, a think about this because um, we are not operating our business uh, accordingly, right? And so explaining this to uh, my students at NYU, I usually will give them a, a, a slide like this that shows, you know, as technology progresses, people start to tend to express the new in terms of the old. So this is the horse's carriage. Why is it called that way? I don't know. It seems to just be an old-timey car. This is a wireless phone. Uh, why it needs that uh, delineation is, of course, 
exactly what uh, typifies how people think about things. Oh, that's different, it's new, but we're gonna frame it in terms of the old. Um, and so if you were to look at the industry at the time, right, and as the industry moves away from that unit sales model to a service-based business, uh, if you were to measure the industry, and that of course is very close to my own heart in the sense that as an analyst of the industry, my question will always be like, well, how do you define a market? What metrics are you looking at? And so on. Um, game companies weren't wrong if you were to only look at uh, you know, the units and the progression of the units. And so you see cartridges, you see CD-ROMs as individual, and then you see digital downloads. And up until 2018, the, the percentage of, uh, of the amount of money being made in digital downloads is still, uh, you know, it's only the second largest category by then. And so there's no real incentive for game companies to kind of run at this, right? They see this emerge and say, well, okay, cool. We can now send digital downloads down the pipe. People can download it onto their console, their PC. Great, good for them. We still charge them 60 bucks, of course. And it's a fine business, but it's a creative or it's, you know, an additional revenue stream. It's not necessarily going to revolutionize the business. And if based on that, of course, uh, on that slide, you would be correct. If you take a slightly different approach and say, well, okay, if we look at the product-based business in the games industry, you see here in the dark blue, that one progresses steadily and will continue to do fine for the foreseeable future. But really the growth in the industry has come from uh, games as a service, right? Um, the free-to-play titles, the subscription-based titles, all of those games that don't really uh, need you to buy a full $60 game. They can uh, they compete on price, but they also compete on content, on features. And so that's where really we've been able to draw in as an industry a lot more consumers, so, you know, expand the addressable audience, find players that were under underserved previously. You have to really wonder, uh, especially of course, also in the indie space, where uh, you know how many of these games would be viable if it weren't for the digitalization of the industry, right? Uh, it would have never worked in a product-based, retail-based uh, business model. And so that's where really the growth has been. And I don't believe that a lot of uh, or I believe it to be true because I know the data, but so the legacy publishers of the world, they took a really long time to figure this out. If you look at it uh, in very sort of strict terms, I took the data set, I divided them into two categories, legacy publishers like the EAs, Activision, Ubisoft, Take-Two, game companies that were part of the product-based business before the internet really started to play a big role. And then there is the digital newcomers, the mobile game companies, the digitally native companies. If you compare the two, and say, okay, well, here's revenue distribution from legacy companies over the last 20 years. Cool, great, they make more money, everybody's happy. If you then add the digital ones, they just explode. And so really that's that's where the growth is, that's where the excitement is in the industry, uh, and that's where also where a lot of the innovation is, right? So the, the, the incumbents, they're more incentivized to, to kind of ride the brake a little bit, go slow, not risk their fancy IP to all kinds of you know finagling exercises, but the digital game companies, they have something, they have now have this sort of empty space with no natural apex predators in there to, to, uh, to cut them off at the knees. And so one example of that, for instance, is, uh, is uh, MapleStory. MapleStory really quickly, it's one of the case studies in the book too, but so the innovative thing here that happened was that MapleStory was a very big deal in South Korea. Nexon flies over one day for whatever reason to the US, they plop down a server and they leave uh, with uh, nobody actually in the domestic uh, US to observe or monitor any of that stuff. They come back six months later and they have this server that's populated. There's all these people playing it. Um, they went uh, to take a look at it and they said, well, they were very successful, but you 
Jesus. Where, where, I just lost my headphones here. Okay, hold on. Yay! A lot of young kids love this game, Maple Story. You might remember it from your own time. Yeah, but the question is, worse, how do you monetize this, right? And it's particularly because younger younger players, they don't have access to credit cards. They can't actually get to the GameStop because you have to drive there. So they figured out that in a free-to-play universe, um, they needed to do a partnership with 7-Elevens around the suburbs so that kids could take their $5 allowance, $10 allowance, and buy a prepaid game card, and then run home, enter the code, and they could enter digital, or they could enter actual dollars into a digital environment. And so... MapleStory in the US went from 600,000 to 6 million to $36 million in annual revenue, not by changing anything about the game, but by solving this, uh, this, this, this challenge of monetization. And they did this right under the nose of incumbents, right? The US is of course governed by legacy publishers and here comes Nexon and it just kind of make everybody else look outdated and slow. Um, and so that's one of those moments where innovation in the business model can be a hugely competitive uh, advantage. Okay, so next one then is, you know, in the same way, uh, the, the reaction you see from the uh, incumbents is like, well, you know, free-to-play is crap. Uh, we've heard that conversation for a while now. Um, and you know what, in, in some circumstances and in, 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 in a variety of applications, I was just playing Battlefront the other day, it, it, is, it indeed is, right? It's a, it's, it could be a very exploitative, uh, wasteful way to, uh, to spend your time. Uh, we're not really getting to the sort of highbrow uh, arts that games can be at the same time. You know, you're really placating or you're appealing to like the, uh, the lesser instincts of people. Uh, and it can be a real problem, right? Um, having seen a lot of the data over the years, you know, there's, there's at some point a concern and consideration like, well, is this really healthy for people to spend this much money? Can they afford that? Or is this some Saudi prince that, it, you know, is money like water, who, who knows? Um, but the thinking, while validated in some aspects of the industry, at the same time, of course, uh, you know, runs into a very you know, clear-cut yes or no, very polarized opinion. But people say like, well, they're not very good, right? So you have Strauss Zelnick from um, from Take Two go like, yeah, it's just it's a crappy category, and we don't bother with that stuff. Okay, well, you know, in some aspects that might have merit. Um, one of the aspects here, for instance, uh, where we uh, just to kind of give you a counter argument to that, to that knee-jerk reaction is to say, it doesn't always work, right? So Wizards of the Coast, which publishes Magic the Gathering, which is one of my favorites, uh, both digital and, and, uh, and card-based, you know, it's a beautiful game. It's known, I mean, I'm talking to the wrong audience. I don't have to explain it. You know Magic the Gathering, you know. Here's, of course, sort of like the dorky characteristic of it. Like it's, it's, a, it's a scene and a culture in its own right. Um, and they started to transform that a little bit. They said, okay, well, we need to have uh, you know, a more avatar-based play system where, you know, you can see immediately that this is a character that's, you know, will adhere to these different types of colors of mana that, that, you know, they will play certain styles in this way, in the same way that you have, you know, Earth Pokemon and Water Pokemon and so on. Um, the challenge is, of course, then, like, how do we take the complexity and mechanics of a game that's really designed to play in between sessions and role-playing conventions? Uh, how do we then translate that into a digital environment so you get this sort of card set up and it's sort of complicated, maybe not as accessible on the one hand, because it's trying to stay true to its original. It's, at the other, on the other hand, the network-based gameplay now allows me to practice and kind of learn about the game without having to involve all of my friends and meet up at the store on the weekends. Uh, I can play whenever I want. There's always somebody online. And so 
there's this uh, range of different affordances and constraints in terms of game design. But of course, uh, in some ways, uh, there's a limitation at WOTC of Wizards of the Coast has been confronting, which is, of course, on the one hand, is this what your audience really wants? Is that, do they want to be online, your core players? Or do they prefer to meet in person and hang out with their friends and do it that way? Uh, so that's one of them. And then uh, on the other hand, uh, you have uh, the challenge, of course, that uh, Wizards of the Coast is very much uh, dependent and, and, and centered on a retail-based release. And so in other words, uh, you can imagine in a digital environment, you can release cards constantly, you can buy and sell cards, but they don't want to do that. They want the digital cards to, to be in lockstep and follow the same cadence of releases as the physical cards. And so they're kind of hindered in that sense that you can't really deviate from that path, right? You can't just drop a new content release um, and then, of course, the competitors show up, and they can. Originally sold to me, uh, what explained to me as a, as a way to rejuvenate the World of Warcraft universe, right? The audience started to plateau and kind of uh, crumble a little bit. So they're like, you know, we need to have something shiny, new, mobile, uh, accessible. Let's make a CCG. And from there, uh, see how that goes. Their staggered rollout and their, uh, you know, uh, their lack of having to adhere to a retail release schedule uh, gave Hearthstone a lot more freedom, and you see that, of course, immediately represented in the initial success, right? So this is uh, a while back now, but it's sort of to give you an indication that, that embracing digitalization and not being uh, held captive to it uh, can be a freeing and allows you to grow very quickly um, uh, because you can sidestep a lot of the existing uh, practices from a physical uh, release. So that's then the second component, right? So it's, there's a bit of a landscape and there's sort of the struggle of game publishers and their mindset with regards to digitalization and the new affordances of the industry. And then now what, right? So, so we kind of see this coming now as so we see these lessons from the past. Where do we go from here? So uh, if you haven't already, uh, you know, try one of these, it's a lot of fun. They're hard to get and they're expensive, of course, always, but uh, you know, it's a, it's a great new moment. Uh, this tends to be a key reset to the ecosystem because, you know, unlike phones and you know, televisions, you don't have a full re, uh, reset of the hardware every six, seven years. Uh, but in games you do, and so there's a, a whole moment of opportunity. What are they going to price it at? What are the capabilities going to be like? What titles will be on this device? And so it gives us an opportunity to kind of think uh, differently and in a new way about the industry. Of course, historically, it's always it's always been a moment of weakness in the minds of a lot of analysts and industry observers. We have uh, the console of the people, and not too long ago, after raising almost nine million on Kickstarter, it was going to revolutionize the ecosystem and change everything with an Android-based operating system and free-to-play monetization tactics. Uya was going to be this incredible disruptor, uh, and you know, consoles were dead, and you know, a lot of C-suite people are going like, "Yeah, that's never going to happen." Uh, you know, everything's different now. And then, of course, you know, you have a whole bunch of uh, articles and industry conventions with presentations like, okay, uh, game console, the, the console is just over. It's, uh, you know, and we'd love to think, of course, that you have to remember. So you see here, for instance, the date in 2012, this is five years after the introduction of the iPhone, really three years after it took off at free to play. And this idea that the iPhone disrupted this entire industry, of course, the smartphone market, the feature phone market, but also starting to eat into the PC market and, of course, tablets. So here's Apple, the disruptor, and it's creating all this value for everyone. Oh, wow, now we're going to see the same thing, this other old-timey console business, um, and it's going to be totally put out of business. Uh, of course, the Wii U uh, 
wasn't really the success that anybody thought it would be. Uh, 13 million units, 30.4 million units in his lifetime was well, uh, it was about, you know, one to 10 compared to like the Wii, which was a generation previous, prior to that. And what that all means, of course, it sets a narrative in people's minds like, well, we have all this disruption here. We have these lackluster successes of consoles over there. And so, you know, the natural conclusion is console gaming is totally dead. Yeah, but not really, right? That doesn't, that didn't really happen. So they, eighth generation, the one we're just exiting now, uh, you know, had well over 225 million units installed worldwide, uh, kind of depending if you put the switch in that bucket or not. But even so, uh, you know, they performed on the same level as the prior generation. So not really dying at all. Uh, in, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, the PlayStation sold, I think, uh, almost as much as the PlayStation 2 back in the day. So they have these tremendous successes. We have, you know, a huge install base. There's a lot of momentum in the market. And so the data just doesn't back up this idea. Um, and you end up really now having to think about it. Well, why did that happen, right? And the short answer to the, uh, for the reason to explain why the, the sort of death of the console is exaggerated, <clears throat> excuse me, is the fact that they were able to embrace digitalization, right? In the case of uh, Sony and Microsoft, that really means, of course, initially they started to diversify the content. They also have TV and film and all kinds of other uh, sort of, uh, related media and entertainment services. Then, of course, they have digital downloads and then they have you know, streaming, like PlayStation Now, these type of services. They started to incorporate those in addition to doing bundles at retail. They're doing the Kinect and all these sort of additional features like PSVR. And so they just expand the entire universe of the console offering and go from there. But what drives it at the, at, you know, at the core is, of course, this very gradual transition if you compare the month-to-month full-game sales. So on the one hand, you have unit sales at retail. On the other hand, you have full-game downloads uh, on consoles. And you compare them month-to-month over the period of, I guess, six years here. You see a very gradual but you know inevitable uh, trajectory that will uh, leave us in the ninth generation to find a moment probably three years from now where it inverses, where digital downloads will be the larger share uh, on the console space in terms of revenue. Um, and so that's what the industry has been doing. They've just been adjusting to a broader ecosystem. Um, what's exciting then, of course, is that this is the same moment that we now have, you know, Jeff coming in, uh, 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 Google and Amazon are all basically trying to break into this industry very aggressively by spending a few billion dollars, hiring a bunch of smart people and seeing if they can throw a, a joypad at you and you will buy it, you subscribe. Um, and so this is an interesting moment because this is a very different set of companies, right? Whereas uh, we see now uh, in, a, in a very polarized world, we see on the one hand, we see big tech, right? Amazon, Google, Facebook, Apple, trying to break into gaming. And then you have the incumbents, Sony's, Microsoft, Nintendo's, and all the publishers and it's a matter of like, okay, well, who's investing back into the ecosystem, right? Where is the loyalty? What's the, where's the robustness? Like in a multi-sided platform business where you are, you have an audience, but you also have creatives and you're the platform in the middle. How do you maintain, uh, you know, some kind of balance between those two? And here comes Jeff with his billions and he goes, well, I'll just subsidize it. I'll do it for very cheap or for free. So the uh, Amazon Luna offering is $6. It's still a little mediocre, but it's really the first early access iteration. I've been playing with it for a few weeks now. It works. It's 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 pretty seamless. It really comes alive once you sign up for like Ubisoft Plus, and you can, you know, leave off in Valhalla 
and then pick it back up in your Xbox, uh, you know, uh, by using the same subscription. So there's there's some features that are exciting about it, but we haven't really seen much other than like sort of a buffet of mediocre titles coming out. Um, but you can see the writing on the wall where they've realized, of course, the uh, uh, incredible spending that consumers do in this category, and it's also the size of it and the growth momentum of it that makes it uh, inevitably something of interest to them. And so not only are we now entering a new hardware cycle, but we also have these, like the, basically the four largest companies in the world by market cap valuation entering into the space, it changes dramatically what's going on, right? And so uh, one way to really express that is to say, uh, increasingly you see a lot of venture capital move into the space, they're funding uh, and, and, and they're providing capital for small startups. And it really seems to me that the business model only revolves around let's build something quick and then sell it uh, to some kind of um, uh, uh, platform very quickly because they're going to be in desperate need for content. Last few slides then before um, I get cut off here is, um, you know, in addition to new devices and platforms and players in the market, we also see some new revenue models. And again, revenue models have such a large influence, such a notable influence on how games are created, the circumstances under which and who plays them and who spends on them. Uh, we see here Game Pass, we see here PlayStation and EA Play. Uh, you know, of course, Game Pass has done really well uh, reporting uh, 50 million subscribers, I think, a month ago, two months ago. And so in many ways, you see this model coming, uh, and that's great. We now have access for cheap to this sort of Netflix gaming buffet. That's cool. The dystopian version of all this is, of course, that for a lot of large publishing, uh, large publicly traded firms, um, having to do transactions with you every month and upselling you on like, items is cool. Well, what's cooler for them and what gets them a higher valuation on the stock market is having recurrent revenue where you just sign up and you know every month they get your $15, your $6, whatever. And so that uh, predictability of, of, uh, of, of revenue and, and managing your lifetime value of your customers rather than having to pitch them every month and remind them every month to buy something new, um, that is a much higher valuation. And so that benefits them in many ways. And so you start seeing that model increasingly not just, of course, on the platform size, but also now on the title level. Why not spend an extra couple of bucks and get all these features and, and extras, get some V-Bucks, go nuts? Uh, it's predictability of revenue to mitigate a lot of the risk associated uh, historically with game development and capitalization. Of course, Luna coming into the mix of that. Um, and then, of course, Stadia as well. I've yet to see a cloud offering that really blows my mind. I'm very excited, of course, about uh, this, this movement, but again, we are moving forward to the rearview mirror in the sense that uh, this is a horseless carriage. It's basically, you know, uh, the same thing I see on my Xbox or my PlayStation where I have my screen with my titles. Um, I pay a subscription for it, but it just emulates a console on a browser. Uh, and that's cool. And I love the convenience, but that only marginally increases the potential here. But I think we haven't seen at all, maybe in the sense of like a rival peak is, uh, you know, the idea that you could fundamentally change game design and the conditions under which you design games, because this is a very different form factor, right? But this is just emulating a console. And of course, then the, uh, the broader notion that uh, big tech has a really hard time uh, dealing with content. Final thought then really is, uh, as we now have a mainstream audience and a huge install base of people looking at this and interested in this, uh, we can now do other things. We can now see, for instance, the music industry having a hard time uh, because of the lack of live performances, but also, um, it's very hard for them to reach young audiences because they're all on Twitch and they're all on YouTube. 
And so you start to see this is little Nas X a few weeks ago, 33 million unique views of uh, a song release. It's a big moment for the music industry that we've seen sort of uh, accumulated in momentum with Marshmallow, of course, and then we had Travis Scott uh, not too long ago. I think he's next. There you go. So you start to see these games that are now uh, either Roblox or Fortnite they create a huge audience, and they start to then come up with indirect revenue streams where the music industry is paying them to reach the audience. And so they themselves sort of operate as a multi-sided platform. And then, of course, this, I guess, Rival Peak is a conversation I had recently with the guys from Genvid. It's an interesting one because they are actively trying to figure out sort of a, a, a game mechanic, a multiplayer uh, AI-driven uh, universe on Facebook that is sort of the next iteration from a, a, a Twitch plays Pokemon kind of version. And that really gets to the cloud where we simultaneously we can collectively influence the game and see what happens and kind of you know, play the game this way. Um, those are some of the uh, rough stretches, rough uh, uh, you know, brush strokes with regards to what the future will look like. And I think it creates a tremendously interesting space for us to all create it. And so, in other words, uh, you know, we end up never being done with this. Uh, you will always be making the next game, the next game, the next game. And in that, also thinking about the larger economic context. Um, thank you for your time. My name is Joost. Uh, I'll be happy to take any questions, uh, and I appreciate any feedback. Thank you. Yeah, all right, we're back. I, I can't work the um, as well as Indy does, though. So let me close that one. There we go. All right, good. So uh, question from Junie over on Twitch. Out of curiosity, what impedes your enthusiasm about cloud streaming for gaming? It's um, cloud streaming is a um, you know that scene from um, from Goodwill Hunting, and he goes right now. So this is about this boy meets a girl, but he's a little awkward and he doesn't know. Who, and then he says to his therapist, he says, uh, "Right now she's perfect because we haven't really dated more than a few weeks." And we end up, you know, not having gone through the troubles and tribulations of having a relationship and dealing with each other's, you know, snotty noses and, you know, hearing each other snore, that kind of thing. And so the weight of the relationship doesn't exist. And it's only the fun part. And so cloud gaming right now is currently in that phase of like, we're just sort of dating this idea, right? Nobody's really committing to it. Nobody's really allocating most of their resources to it. In many ways, it's a... Um, it's a it's it's a perfect technology right now, right? And so, for that reason, you have to be skeptical of it because if nobody's committed, if nobody's actually willing to build a relationship with any of this, we end up with a whole bunch of you know uh, very light touches, very um, uh, uh, I say frivolous relationships. And so, cloud streaming, it you know, I guess if I get out of the metaphorical explanation, I would say something like the. Bandwidth isn't quite there yet to reach a main consumer market. The content offered isn't there yet, where it's so fundamentally different that it totally justifies me also than spending money on a cloud streaming service in addition to what I'm already paying Apple and Sony and all those others. And so it isn't quite there yet and it hasn't had, uh, it doesn't have enough critical mass. It really is about um, things like platform agnostic services that I think is the, is, the, is the closest thing we have right now. But we haven't seen any content that really personifies uh, cloud streaming in the, you know, one last thought on that is like what made, for instance, uh, such an interesting success about the iPhone, uh, 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 Angry Birds, such a success on the iPhone was it was the game that showed people how to use swiping, 
right? And so it was a game that uh, explained to you the features and the potential of the new platform that you were holding. People haven't been swiping, of course, um, previously, but it also showed you how the device worked. And so it interlocks pretty well. Cloud streaming, I get it from a technological perspective, but what now is, what's the angry birds of the cloud? And so without that answer clearly, we have to be uh, somewhat uh, uh, careful to overvaluate. So another one from Pruitt, some more 79. So as you mentioned in the beginning about the overvaluing of the lone genius, one of the methods you mentioned for overcoming the idea was the process of forming a network within the industry to help the common pitfalls that solo developers often go through. Concerning a new, very fresh solo dev, what would you personally suggest as the best method to go about creating an effective network within the gaming industry next year? Yeah, that's a really good one. So, so I like to think that, you know, um, it's really the uh, the people around you that, that 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 allow you to create these things, right? It's it's a, a no creative operates in a vacuum as much as you like to think of this. And so, as a best method, yeah, twenty twenty one is a bit different because you there's no meetups in the thing that you used to have. But I think if so, find out where you are. So I am connected to the NYU Game Center, for instance, and they do regular. Uh, uh, Twitch streams, uh, uh, the regular like showcases. They have speakers. Uh, they really try to bring together a community because that's how they also value uh, and how they see that uh, that work out. So find a local school program or a local university that has some. So where you have some kind of geographical kinship, perhaps you can you know meet up with people in person as vaccines get distributed. Hopefully, so it's it's finding those areas where. Yeah, I would probably say just universities uh, that are focused and geared and specialized in, in game development in some way, or even just creativity in that sense. Like it doesn't have to be game specific. Um, and so from there, then um, start sharing ideas, start teaming up with people, do a game jam. Um, you know, if you are at the beginning of this, you have to build a portfolio as much as you need to build a network. And so just be out there, just be dating, sort of creatively dating all these people. Um, and 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 find these hubs like universities, school programs, uh, uh, you know, all kinds of sort of events that that will get you there. But I have to, of course, admit that like I've, I was never a creative, so I haven't walked that path myself. But I see a lot of people benefit from like, especially university programs. And you know, not from the creative standpoint, but you know, that's what we've got with with indie game business too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is kind of fantastic discord, you know. But yeah. you know, again, it's not on the creative side as much because mm -hmm. I'm, I'm like ghost, and, and that's not it. Uh, and so yeah, I, I've bundled up as well because it's about two degrees Fahrenheit outside right now with the wind chill, and it's cutting through the my office. So, uh, very specific question for you: Can NYU grads audit your Stern course through SCPS if you sign off on it? I have no idea. Uh, I also, I get emails every semester. It's like you can't, you're not allowed to answer that question. So, I'm, so the department tells me, uh, talk to the dean or whoever's in charge. I'll be happy. The more the merrier. I'm all for it. Let's do six thousand people in the class. But uh, they have some uh, some paywall, obviously. So find out with um, it's the Stern uh, marketing program. So reach out to them. They can answer for you. So another one from Twitch, Mech Elena says, what can other new players, Google and Amazon, learn from Apple Arcade's current flop? 
Ah, uh, yeah. So I have a few thoughts, but I'll give you just the one, which is I like Hyper Arcade. I was very bullish at first. I said it's going to be super big success until I saw the inventory. And um, what I think happened with the Apple Arcade is that they, you know, in the typical Apple fashion, they take the best of the best people. So they had all these people that were sort of highbrow uh, industry reviewers and critics. And they tend to do the editorializing and they do the, uh, the, the, the pick and choosing on the back end and they sort of curate the inventory. And so you have all these uh, really experienced and smart people looking at the games. They're like, we're here, we're going to build Apple Arcade. And they then get like this slush of titles that are potential customers to uh, potential candidates to be in the catalog. And it resulted in basically this art house inventory. And that's cool. Like, I get it. You know, these are beautiful games that have to match the Apple aesthetic and it's over. This is not stuff that my seven-year-old wants to play. This is not stuff that my mom wants to play. So what's exciting about, about the cloud is that it's for everyone and it's casual. And it's, you know, this is the daytime TV equivalent of gaming, right? Let's not pretend that this is the, the big blockbuster Hollywood production. Let's keep it simple. And I think where... I think where Amazon gets that right is that they're clearly going for casual, everyone, six bucks, go, you know, if you want to play some of the time, it's perfect. But Apple Arcade is I'm not spending five bucks a month on like these, like, you know, highbrow games. It's, it's, so, so if you're targeting a casual audience, then give them casual content, give them something that's accessible. Don't try to alienate them with like all your like, you know, schmancy stuff. So, Judy, again from Twitch, what are your thoughts on how the industry can reach beyond the players who currently identify themselves as gamers? I don't know. That seems so. Why would the industry want to reach people that already identify as gamers? Like, so so, how they can reach beyond those players? Oh, beyond. Okay. Yes, I see that. Okay. Um, that's a really good question. So, the. I guess the industry has been, it really depends on who's, who's driving. So if it's an EA, then it's a matter of like, okay, how do I expand my addressable audience and how do I reach other people um, without alienating the group that is already paying me, that's already playing my, my titles. And I think that that's a big uh, challenge for an EA. And I don't think that they have a lot of maneuverability there because, you know, they are very much locked down uh, when it comes to uh, the IP that they own and the, and the relationship that they're part of. For smaller firms, I think it is a relatively easier thing to do. I think what works really well is iterative design. So make lots of games and see what sticks. And so you see now, for instance, this nebulous category of hyper-casual games where you have a small, you have a bunch of small teams and they just throw things in the wall and see what sticks and then iterate on that. I think that that might be a good way to do it where opposite to like a large blockbuster release, right? Um, which you have to challenge the, the, the notion that will Cyberpunk 2077 really bring that many more people that weren't playing before? Or is that gonna just be a home game and everybody's already a gamer is just dying to get it, but will it really attract that many more people? Whereas I think casual games and uh, different ways to think about game design, uh, even in existing context, that is a way to pull people in. So. One thing that uh, perhaps relates to this is uh, after watching The Queen's Gambit on Netflix, me, like probably many others, uh, you know, I remember that I used to play quite a bit of chess for a very long time. It's like, oh, snap, I forgot about this. So, uh, you know, 
it wasn't so much that I needed to be introduced to a new game, but I was pulled back into the fray and started spending again on some of these things because uh, you know that was something that had escaped me. And so perhaps the answer to your question then isn't so much to make more games or different games, but to also think about it as a cross-platform or sort of media agnostic approach where uh, it can be related to a particular kind of uh, narrative universe. Um, you know, what was that Star Wars chess game back in the movies, right? So like, is there something we, so there's all these different spin-offs. I thought that um, Gwent was a really good example of like expanding the universe. Like you said, where you have the RPG gamers and then you have the card gamers. And so along the same way, there's all these different ways to spin off existing things that might resonate with audiences that don't traditionally play. But that's a really good question. I did exactly the same thing after watching Queen's Gambit. I was like, I used to really like playing chess. And yes. now I'm like, I haven't played in a long time and I'm really bad. But that was <laughs> that, that was the same thing on this side. So um, we've got time for a couple of more. And then we're going to have Anya from Kickstarter next up doing, some, doing an AMA. So um, cool. You mentioned the impact of network effects on the industry. Any practical tips on how smaller developers can lean into utilizing these? Network effects. So, so there's network effects for small developers really probably uh, rotate mostly around things like um, uh, getting your users and, and, and getting them to be part of the value of the game, right? So I think Among Us is a really good example where, uh, you know, it is the game itself is cool and it's you know a game of werewolf is a lot of fun but it's really the other humans that are involved that make it so so find a game and i mean you know so it seems an obvious to say oh yeah make a game with lots of players and get the players to do something and uh, somehow involve them actively let them make decisions that affect other players and then that's sort of the, the whole deal um that seems to clear cut, but that's only half the thought. The other part of that thought is, of course, now you also obligate yourself to making sure that it's a kosher environment, that everybody feels safe, that there is not a lot of bullying going on and all this sort of nonsense. So network effects can kind of be a, a double-edged blade in that you can see the potential of having all this audience. At the same time, you know, you might end up having to deal with all this community trouble. Um, and so practical tips, yeah, I would start small. I'm always tempted to really think about um, uh, how Lady Gaga went mainstream. Lady Gaga uh, did really well first in all the clubs here in Manhattan, in New York. Uh, and that's where she really built her fan base. There was a particularly, uh, you yeah. know, the club scene was a big supporter for her in, in her early stages. And then, then she went big, but she already had this base. And I think yeah, to benefit from network effects, you have to establish a base first. Right? And so that's, so however you can do that, that could be local board game shops, could be students in uh, design programs, it could be the people at your office, but like build a community around it and then from there uh, iterate. So we got time for one more and then we're gonna kick it over. And I, I do appreciate you taking time this morning. Of course. Here. Um, the last one from Matthew over on YouTube. Are, are platformers even worth making anymore? Well, Matthew, of course. I mean, they're awesome. You know, it's just, you know, you have to ask yourself, like, it's, um, what does it mean to you that it's worth it, right? Um, does it, and, and that, I think, is a question all creative effort uh, answers in some way. Are you are you doing this for your own sake? Are you doing this to get rich? 
Are you doing this to get critical acclaim? Are you looking for a validation by someone or other? Is this a school project? Like, I don't know, right? And so platformers, uh, I think, uh, are a very established category. At the same time, you know, it is exactly the sort of never-ending iterations that progress these things in the same way that, uh, you know, I don't think we'll ever, that we're not arriving at the perfect platformer in the same way that we've arrived at chess and checkers and go. Like if we compare platforms to those sort of ultimate forms of a particular game, we're not there yet. And so it's totally worth it because even though your iterations might be marginal uh, in the moment, I think over time, platforms have come a really, really long way. And I think that that is a creative effort well worth uh, pushing further. There you go. All righty. I mean, thank you so much, like I said, for taking time to do this because this is all Anytime. Reach out. Yell at me. Let's talk. We're doing, and, and he's on the Discord server, so I saw we had a couple other questions come in. If y'all will pop over there, there's a post-show chat channel uh, set up for just this type of situation. And wonderful. everybody who's got a ticket to the event is going to be getting a wonderful discount for Yost's book, One Up. So thanks again. We're going to be out. We'll be back in about three or four minutes with Anya Combs from Kickstarter. Talk to thanks you everyone. soon. See you later. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at indiegame.business.